What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. President Joe Biden on Saturday signed a bill that suspends the U.S. government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling with a package he says prevents the financial sky from falling. But progressive Democrats say the weight of the plan falls heavily on the shoulders of America's most vulnerable populations and the planet. Joining us to discuss, I'm so excited to finally have you on the new show, John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. Good morning, John. Good morning, Kathy. I'm so excited to be with you. How you been, man? You know, um, I like that it's getting, yeah, you know, from the upper Midwest in the cold area, so I like that it's getting warmer. If you want to talk about yeah. weather, I'm doing okay. If you want to talk about right policy, on. not so good. Not so <laughs> great. But, John, before we get into the travesty, I think that's the right word uh, yeah. for this, I, I want to do a, a little bit of nuts and bolts. Just write down for my listeners, what is a national debt ceiling and... Um, yeah, start with that. What is the national debt ceiling? It's a totally fake construct. It's a lie. We should begin with that. The debt ceiling's not in the Constitution. It's not in the laws of the land. It's, it's a behavior that, that Congress adopted back around the time of World War I. And they frankly adopted a lot of bad behaviors. And it's just a practice where they say, oh, well, if we get to spend a lot of money, um, we ought to you know, pause and make sure we want to pay our debts, right? You know, with it, all of us could do that, right? If you're buying a house or, or doing something in regular life and you pause and say, I'm not sure I want to pay this anymore. Well, that's all it is. And it, it's a lie. And, but it is used by the opposition party in any particular sense, you know, where they've got control of one chamber of Congress to kind of stall out the process and to stop policy from, from being implemented. And I know that 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 sounds like a big political statement. Let me simplify it in this regard. The debt ceiling now is seen as something that has to be dealt with. And thus, uh, when you reach it, Congress is supposed to give a a waiver to say, oh, we can go above the debt ceiling. And because this lie has been in place now for 100 years, you know, it's become routinized that, you know, they have a little debate and they raise the debt ceiling. Historically, it was done... Um, without even a, a fight. It was barely noticed. It was a perfunctory vote done, you know, late at night, and they move on to the next thing. Now, in recent years, um, uh, the right, frankly, has weaponized it as a tool uh, because it's sort of an entry point where they can attack social welfare programs, especially. And, John, not only is it a, a lie, but my understanding, as I was getting prepared to try to sound as smart as you for this segment, it, it's also it's not like tied to any real strategy, right? It's not doesn't take into consideration things like inflation or population growth. None of that. <clears throat> taxes. No. No. Well, it takes into account taxes. Let me just, you know, one one minor uh, clarification there. Um, it's, it's always done um, to lock in the failure to tax the rich, right? Because here you are getting toward a debt ceiling situation, right? It says, okay, we've got this much money coming in, we've got that much going out, we don't have enough resources to, to avoid hitting the debt ceiling. But one of the things you could say immediately is, oh, we better tax the rich some more, right? We better you know, raise taxes on billionaires and, and so we don't go over the debt ceiling. They never do that. 
Instead, they do a debt ceiling waiver. And in the midst of that, you lock in this practice that says, oh, well, the rich aren't going to pay their taxes, right? They don't pay their sufficient share of taxes. Um, but somehow that's not something we can talk about. You realize we'd never hit the debt ceiling if, you know, let's say um, six months before the debt ceiling, we're saying, oh, debt ceiling's coming. This is a problem. We'd better ask the rich to pay more taxes. We could avoid it every time if we did that, but we never do that. And so it, it's a weird dynamic that the very wealthy, very powerful have figured out this is a tool by which they sort of lock in practices which are very beneficial for them, but very harmful for the rest of us. Yeah, you put in um, one of your articles for The Nation that can – Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal describes this as a Republican extortion scheme. Say more. Yeah, it's a very good, and I give uh, uh, Representative Jayapal good credit for, for that term and also that observation and also her vote on this issue. Um, and why it's an extortion scheme is because if you take uh, military funding out of the mix, right, they're never, they say never reduce military funding. And if you take tax cuts for the rich and or tax increases for the rich off the table. You're never going to increase taxes for the rich, right? Then if you hit the debt ceiling and you're saying as a Republican, well, we've got to find some place to cut. Well, in that context, what are we going to cut? We are either going to cut social welfare programs for poor folks, for working class folks, for, for struggling folks, for vulnerable people, or the economy is going to blow up. We're going to go off the rails, right? And so it is an extortion scheme. And basically, it's an extortion scheme that gets Democrats to say, yep, I guess we're just going to have to sue the courts. John, one of the, the areas that folks are really screaming about um, are the environmental impacts of this package, specifically the green lighting of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, uh, the West Virginia project favored by fossil fuel companies and Senator Joe Manchin. Um, t t t talk, about, talk about that. And right. how this actually is a massive about face from, I feel like the last time we talked about national debt ceiling and the package and how excited people were um, about, about Joe Biden and his promises, right, to, to stop killing our planet and to invest in the agencies that do that work. Yeah, look, um, this is one of the really deeply frustrating things about the current debt ceiling fight, okay? Um, going into this, uh, Joe Biden had been a very imperfect president. He's not, you know, don't don't imagine that he's done everything right because he certainly hasn't. But one of the areas where he had in his first two and a half years, three years as president, moved the country forward was on some recognition of the climate crisis, some recognition of what we can do, um, often incrementally, uh, to protect the planet and, frankly, to, to do broader environmental initiatives. In this extortion scheme, as Pramila Jayapal refers to it, the Republicans got uh, President Biden, the Democrats, to agree to undo a lot of what they had done over the last couple of years to like step back from progress. And that was bad enough. But then in order to get Joe Manchin happy and on board in the Senate and also maybe to convince him to run for reelection and things like that, they approved a pipeline project uh, that in West Virginia and Virginia that is exceptionally unpopular, even with people that live there. 
like there's a lot of people who live there who are like, you know, yeah, we'd love the jobs, but this is going to really wreck a lot of stuff. And it's got a great deal of, of threats environmentally. It's also just a dream giveaway for the fossil fuel companies. And so it was terrible, terrible policy. And um, it's one of those areas where the Republicans were demanding it, no doubt. But, you know, let's not let Joe Biden and other folks off the hook on this. They, instead of saying that's the one line we aren't going to cross because the planet is burning, you know, we, we have to, you know, have at least some place where we, we draw the line. They did. They accepted a lot of backtracking on environmental issues. How concerned are progressives that Republicans are going to use the winds uh, of this winds that's in air quotes of this round to push for more rollbacks to environmental protections moving forward? What are we setting ourselves up for, particularly given the fact that, uh, you know, the president might change in 2024? Well, Kat, you just summed it up. Um, you know, first and foremost, you, you've seen them where the hand is being played, right? The Republicans have made it absolutely clear if they have power, if they can leverage power in any way they will uh, backtrack from, move away from efforts to save the planet. This is much worse than when George W. Bush was president, because George W. Bush was finally bad on these issues, but he still you know, kind of allowed some, you know, within the, the overall scheme of things, there was some progress. These Republicans that we've got now are very, very militant in, in kind of, you know, burn, baby, burn, move back from, you know, efforts to save the planet toward, you know, fossil fuel uh, companies getting to do whatever they want. And you point out, yes, if we get a different president, but here, Kat, is an even maybe more dangerous prospect. And that is you get President Biden reelected, but you get a Republican House and Senate. And thus, you don't have just a debt ceiling crisis. You've got every day is a requirement that Biden negotiate with the Republicans. And it's clear mm. part of their negotiating strategy is to undo environmental progress. So you'd have a Democratic president who, you know, ultimately is, would, would preside over backtracking on these fundamental issues and have really no power to move us forward. So whoever the next president is, if you've got a Republican Congress, um, we're frankly in a very dangerous place on these issues because there's no sign that they are willing to, to even compromise slightly on it. And unfortunately, there is evidence that the Democrats, at least many Democrats, are willing to, you know, put this on the table as part of negotiations. John, I just graduated my kid from high school this weekend. And so, of course, one piece of this that caught my eye is that this removes the freeze on student loan repayments. Um, I don't have any yet, but, you know, that's that's potentially on the horizon. But what I'm interested in, John, is like it's hard enough right now, right, for working class families to keep their kids in college for kids that are graduating right with degrees, can't get any jobs. Is there are there any guardrails here? What kind of situation have we placed college students, newly, newly graduated folks, working class families in with this? It's a bad thing. I mean, this is, look, um, what you had before was not a solution, right? But at least we had an acknowledgement that this debt burden that we've put on young Americans is having a profound impact on them. And it's frankly having a profound impact on society because brilliant young people who finish college with a lot of debt, instead of going into um, the the socially, environmentally, racially uh, useful uh, initiatives, right, where they might actually try to solve problems, they're carrying so much debt that they're pressured to take jobs in, in business, in corporate areas, because, you know, it's, how do I get out of this debt? Um, 
we were beginning to acknowledge that that's a bad thing. and We want to kind of free young people up. And so we were putting holds on what they have to pay and looking for ways to restructure the debt. This put, you know, again, these debt issues on the table and allowed them to be negotiated in a way that harms young folks. So it's a, it's a backtracking. It's a moving away from progress on these issues. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't still, aren't still efforts in a lot of states and a lot of places around the country to get this right. But I've got to tell you, um, it was very frustrating to see that. And that I'm glad you brought it up because that's a largely undercovered aspect of this. But for you know, working class folks, uh, young folks who are carrying a lot of debt, and even middle aged folks who are carrying a lot of debt, um, this debt ceiling, this is college debt, this debt ceiling agreement is another burden on them and one that, that puts pressures on them uh, to take that corporate job rather than to do the thing that they love and that they know they'd be better at. Talk to us about what happened to uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, um, as well as additional restrictions on temporary assistance for needy families or TANF. Yeah, these are the worst of the things. I mean, I, I think the, the worst aspects of this, although, you know, it's hard to determine amongst the many bad aspects. But this is so, you know, really cruel. What they did was they did an adjustment in um, the age at which if you're trying to get SNAP benefits, you're, if you're out of work and you're hungry, right, and you need, you know, access to food, um, they, have, they have put a, a, opened up an area for people, especially in their, in their 50s, um, who, you know, need food, right? And they've said, well, you can't get it unless you meet these work requirements. So you jump through these hoops to get food. And so the problem with that is if you understand, it, they can say, well, it's a very narrow group and stuff like that. But if you understand, especially around America, if you're living in a small town and you've lost your job in a factory, in a warehouse, in some place where you have been working and, um, and you don't have a lot of family support and you're in need of food, now they're going to say, well, somehow you've got to go out and find some other job. You've got to be looking for some other kind of work there. And it, it's exactly the wrong way to do it. Science, you know, research data tells us this, this doesn't, you know, get people to work. It doesn't, it doesn't do any good. It just denies them the food. And so that's what they did with SNAP. And it's, it's you know, a relatively narrow thing, but it's, a, it's putting, you know, work requirements at a broader level onto SNAP. It also relates to TANF, and it's just the, the notion that people who need uh, food or basic benefits, basic things to survive, in, when they are in a situation where they're unemployed or severely underemployed, um, are now going to have to jump through more, more hoops. Their lives are going to be made more difficult. And that's, that's senseless. It, it, again, doesn't do any good. It's penalizing. It's punishing. And the thing that I always say, the way to keep it in perspective is that this is an agreement that doesn't raise taxes on the rich, that actually increases the Pentagon budget, and yet it says when a working class person is hungry and without food, well, that, that we can't deal with, right? That we can't help them on. So we're going to help the rich, we're going to help the Pentagon, but we're not going to help the hungry person that needs food. To me, that goes to the basic premises of pretty much every religion in the world. Your basic moral construct is, you know, if, if somebody's hungry, you feed them, right? But not in America. 
All right, John Nichols, I got to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to having you back soon. Kat, it is a tremendous honor to be with you, and congrats on your uh, on your high school graduate. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.